Christians while they receive the offering. Let's pull out our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are backing up this morning um, in the, the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for uh, a couple months now. We've got a couple months left to go. Uh, we are in chapter 5, and kind of to the end of chapter 5, uh, we are in uh, verse 38. If you have a blue Bible, it's underneath the seat you're sitting in. I believe it's on page 895. Nine, I think that's right. I could have just made that up, but I'm pretty sure it's 899, Matthew 5. If I'm wrong, somebody can correct me. 899, Matthew chapter 5 um, is where we're going to be. Last week, we skipped ahead to talk about fasting, right? And again, I said, you can go online, you can find that sermon online and kind of get caught up to where we're at in this season of Lent. But now we're going to go back and we're going to get back on our regular schedule as we just kind of walk through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verse by verse, section by section, together as a church. And so we're back in this section where Jesus is giving these, um, these, these kind of six different teachings, and they all begin the same way. You've heard it said, dot, 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 fill in the blank, but I say to you, right? You've heard it said, here's this old teaching from the Old Testament, and, and typically the, kind of the Pharisees' interpretation of that teaching, or, or maybe just the teaching from the Old Testament. But I say to you, let me, let me, let me reteach you, let me reshow you real, the true heart of the law, what God actually desires from you. I know that this is what the law says, but just because that's what the law says doesn't mean that it's what God desires from you. And what he's doing is he's deconstructing the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have said, because I am obedient to the law, because I do all these things according to the law, I follow the letter of the law, therefore I'm righteous. Jesus is deconstructing this idea and says, no, 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 righteousness has more to do with your heart in the heart of God than it does for than your performance according to some letter of the law. And so he's breaking this down and kind of exposing this before them. And I've said this again and again and again. I'm going to say it again and again and again. The Sermon on the Mount is really, really good at this. There's two sermons that are being preached in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. There's the Sermon of the World that says this is where true flourishing happens. These are the things you need in your life. This is how you need to live. These are the things that you want. Look, this would make your life better. And then there's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, this is where true flourishing occurs. And these two sermons do not get along. They do not get along. And the Sermon on the Mount is like a road grader to our souls. It kind of tears up every inch and every corner of our life and exposes where we have bought in and where we are believing the Sermon of the World where I have adapted that in my life and said, I believe this to be true and I'm living this out, it exposes that. It says, man, that's not okay as a follower of Jesus. And there's so many moments in the Sermon on the Mount where this is really, really hard for us to stomach. There's so many moments in the Sermon on the Mount where this is really, really hard for us to hear. And today might be one of the biggest for some of us in the room. For some of you in the room today, you are going to leave um, today. I'm just going to give you a fair warning. You're going you're gonna to leave with a lot of questions. You might leave with some anger. You might leave with some frustration. Uh, you might leave confused, um, far more confused than when you walked in. Um, today, we are going to wrestle through uh, a text that really the idea, the root of it has taken me some eight or nine years of wrestling. Eight or nine years of wrestling. Um, I have a good friend, his name is Joseph, and some nine years ago, Joseph kind of challenged my, my view or my uh, thoughts on, on this text and other texts that are similar to it. 
um, and my knee-jerk reaction was, that's not right. You're an idiot. Um, he's one of my best friends, I can say that. Um, he's not an idiot. He's brilliant. Um, but that was, my, that was my reaction. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. What about this? And what about this? And what about this? I had a million questions. And I have no doubt that many of us in the room today are going to leave that way. You're going to say, Josh, you're an idiot. And you're going to have a million questions. And that's, that's my hope today. If we get there, we're in a good place. If you, if you leave here thinking, I'm an idiot, and you have a lot of questions, mission accomplished. Um, that's the beginning of this journey. I, I just want to let you know, man, I, I have no false hopes of changing anyone's mind this morning. What Jesus is going to expose and what he's going to unearth is going to take a long time and a lot of wrestling and a lot of questions um, in order to actually get to what he's trying to get you to get to. And so my hope is that you just be open to that idea um, as we engage in this. What we're talking about this morning ultimately is retaliation and revenge. Retaliation and revenge um, is in every single one of us. We've all experienced it. Maybe for you as a family member, right? You said the wrong thing, you did the wrong thing, and they came back at you 10 times as hard. Maybe it's something on Facebook or Instagram. Maybe it's a, a coworker. You slipped up. You did. You, you did something wrong. And now everybody in the office knows, and you have been outcast from that day. We've all experienced it. And the truth is, we've all done it. Retaliation is one of the ugliest sins in the world, and yet we've all participated in it at some point, some level. We are often, we are, when we are offended, there is something in us that screams out, not for justice. We want to call it justice, and you're going to be tempted even today to call it justice, but it's actually revenge to inflict 10 times the amount of pain that they caused us, to do 10 times the amount of damage that they've done to us. But for the follower of Jesus, this action cannot exist. It cannot exist. Our text for this, for this morning is a famous text. It's well known. In fact, everybody in this room has heard it. You've heard it. Whether you've never been in church ever before in your life, you've heard it. How many of you have heard this? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Anybody here ever heard that before in your life? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. How many of you have ever heard, uh, go the extra mile? Anybody ever hear that phrase before? Any of you not raising your hands because you think I can't see you? Um, I can see you. Uh, how many of you ever heard, um, how many of you ever, ever heard, uh, oh my goodness, you guys threw me off. How, how many of you ever heard, um, uh, if somebody, if anyone's turned the other cheek, anybody ever heard that before? Turn the other cheek? Okay, everybody. Okay. Listen, this is a common text. We've all heard it. But it's also super misapplied and misunderstood and mis, misinterpreted again and again and again throughout the, throughout the past centuries. It's been misunderstood and misinterpreted. And so we're going to dive into it this morning. Here is the text for us. Matthew 5, 38. I'll read it for us. Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said. Here's the original statement. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, the new statement, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would ever sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. 
and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay. The original phrase, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This is an Old Testament uh, legal jargon. It's a legal matter. There's several places in the Old Testament where this, where this law comes into place, and for different reasons, actually, um, in the Old Testament. We see it um, in Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, Leviticus 24. I'll read a couple of them for you. That Leviticus 24 text comes from uh, verses 19 through 20. It reads this way. If anyone injures his neighbor, now you got to think back, first century Israel, okay? First century Israel, you break your neighbor's arm. What are the consequences of that for him, right? Today, you break your arm, you go to the, the hospital, they reset it, they put it in a cast, and you're back to work on Monday. In ancient Israel, ancient Israel, there's no healing for that. He can't, he can't tend to his fields. He can't care for his flock. He can't do basic things. His family goes hungry. There's massive consequences to bodily injury in ancient Israel. So if anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for act for fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. That's the law in ancient Israel. Now, why? Why did they create that law? Why? Why might you, why might you break somebody else's arm? Why might you knock out somebody else's teeth? Seriously, why? why? You're angry with them. Why might you be angry with them? They did something wrong. Yeah. Listen, I'm not trying to trick you. I promise. These are easy questions. They did something to you. And so what the law's intent is, is to stop vengeance, to stop retribution, to say, man, listen, just because somebody did something to you, right, does not mean that you can repay them tenfold. Because somebody accidentally, man, killed your sheep. If you knock out their teeth, listen, that is not a just consequence for their action. If somebody took something for you, and you break their arm. It's not a just action, and that's not a just consequence for what they did. There, there is a, there's a this is, it's not for you to take in your own hands. This is the point, the purpose of the law. Deuteronomy 19, uh, it's a little bit longer of a text, 15 through 21, but I'm going to read it for us. It says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall the challenge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest, and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. And you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. And I, your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Again, 
Again, so this is a court of law. If anyone comes and accuses somebody of doing something, it turns out they didn't actually do that, right? They just wanted to get them in trouble for doing that thing, right? Whatever the punishment was for doing the thing they're accusing them of doing, it will be taken out on that person, the accuser. Why might somebody accuse somebody of doing something that they didn't actually do? They're jealous. Think about your kid for a minute. And you guys got kids? Your kids ever say that their brother or sister did something that they didn't actually do? Why might they do that? To get them in trouble. Why might they want to get them in trouble? I didn't hear that, but I'm sure it was funny. Because they, because they did something. They did something, right? They, they did something to their sibling, and their sibling's like, I'm telling mom, but what I'm actually going to tell mom is actually worse than what you did. You did something to me, and I'm not happy about it, right? You stole my toy, but I'm going to tell mom you punched me in the face, right? And so you're going to get in way more trouble than you did. Guess what? Adults do this too. Adults do this too. And so the law is designed to stop Revenge. Justice says you're going to get what you deserve. Revenge says, I'm going to increase your punishment. I'm going to increase your penalty. I'm going to make it worse for you than you made it for me. That's vengeance. That's revenge. The law is designed to stop that. And so Jesus is speaking into this idea, this thing that's meant to stop vengeance, stop violence, stop the perpetuation of violence. Within us is the desire, within every single one of us in this room, is the desire to punish more than what has been given. I got a little boy at home. I got two little boys, Winston and Haddon. And this is what I often hear. Uh, Winston has a, has a phrase that he says all the time um, when dealing with his brother. And so I'll hear it. You can hear it kind of begin to build in the other room. Parents know what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, right, there's this bickering going on. And then Haddon will kind of cry out in pain. And Winston will say, that's what you get. That's what you get. And what he's teaching his brother, the lesson that he's trying to teach his brother is, hey, when you mess with me, when you take apart my Legos, when you jack with my stuff, and I tell you to stop, and you don't stop, I'm going to own you. <laughs> I'm going to inflict bodily harm upon you. And the idea is, is that if I do that enough, my brother will stop doing the things that annoy me. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work because it keeps happening all the time. But that's the idea. There's something that's from a young age, there's something in us that says, man, what I need to do in this moment, this person has caused me harm, they've caused me a pain, they've caused me annoyance. What I need to do is 10 times worse than what they would do, than what they did. You hit me, I'm going to, you, you push me, I'm going to punch you in the face. You punch me in the face, I'm going to beat you to a pulp. You beat me to a pulp, I'm going to burn down your house. You burn down my house, I'm going to kill your family. You fly your plane into my building, I'm going to invade your country. We do this as individuals. We do this in communities. We do this as nations. I'm going to do to you 10 times worse than you did to me. We don't want to think about it, but it's happening all the time. And the human response, the human response is, yes, they got what they deserved. That's what you get as Winston would say. That's the human response. 
When we see vengeance play out, that is the human response. Deep within us, it is in our nature. It is in all of us. But what Jesus is teaching us, what he's about to teach us, is that for the Christian, the response should be, wait a minute. Hold up. I'm not sure that's okay. I'm not sure that that's okay. I'm not sure that that's justice. This response is rare because as Christians, we fail to search out the wicked within us. We allow our hearts to deceive us. We fail to give violence and revenge deep thought. We fail to prepare ourselves to respond as Christ would respond in the moment when our hearts are filled with rage. You respond to what is happening inside of you because you've not thought what you would do if someone did such a thing to you. You've not prepared yourself. This is true for so many of us, most of us in this room. So Jesus, Jesus takes this judicial rule. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye or two for a tooth. And then he doesn't address it. He doesn't talk about it. He never addresses it. His response, but I say to you, is completely different. His response is more of a personal ethic. Here's what he says. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Friends, if that doesn't rattle you a little bit, either A, you're not hearing it, Or B, you're not thinking through the implications of that. Jesus is saying, do not resist the one who would seek to do you harm. Some, someone wants to take from you. Do not resist that. Do not resist evil. Just let it happen. The question, the human question that everybody ought to be asking right now is, wait. How? How is that possible? How, how, hey, hey, how could anybody ever actually do that? Like, how could you actually just, like, endure evil in that, in that level, in that way? And B, don't you realize the consequence of that? And those are the two questions that I want to wrestle through in a moment. But first, I, I want us to look at three different vignettes. There's three pictures that Jesus gives us um, in, in this passage. The first is this. And they're all legal matters, by the way. This is, we, we miss this. We, we misunderstand this. But these are all legal matters. The first is this. In verse 39 it says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What Jesus is speaking into here is not violence. So often we think, man, if somebody punches us in the face, that we should just like let them continue to beat on us. That's not what he's getting at. That is absolutely not what he's getting at. If somebody causes physical harm to me, I shouldn't call the police and call for help. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. That's not non-violence, non-vengeance, non-retaliation. That's not what that is. That's not what that is. What Jesus is getting at is a legal matter in first century Israel. In first century Israel is a culture of honor and shame. A culture of deep dignity and respect. And the most disrespectful thing a man could do to another man was to slap him across his right cheek. There was a law against this in first century Israel. 
It was against the law for a man to slap another man across his right cheek, right? To backhand him across his right cheek. It was against the law. You were not allowed to do that. Not because you weren't allowed to do something violent. You, you could do violent things to another human being, but you weren't allowed to slap him across the face. Because to slap someone across the face in this society and in this culture was the ultimate sign of disrespect. It was the ultimate sign of, I do not value you in any way, shape, or form. You are nothing to me. It was the ultimate kind of removal of dignity and the removal of honor for that person. So what Jesus is saying is, my people, my people do not seek retaliation when someone has insulted them, even to the greatest level possible. Think about it for a minute. When someone insults you to the greatest level imaginable, when they rip you apart on social media, when they turn all of your friends against you, and they belittle you and insult you, Jesus says, man, my people, the people of my kingdom, the people who follow after me do not respond to that. Friends, is that the sermon of the world? Is it the sermon of the world? No, it's not. It's absolutely not. We'll talk more about it in a minute, but we're going to keep moving. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, this is a first century legal matter. You were allowed, right? If somebody wronged you or did not repay their debts, you were allowed to take them to court and to sue them. But... You could sue them for 100% of everything that they owned, except for their outer garment, their cloak, this, this outer robe that they would wear. Again, you have a culture of dignity and respect. You cannot make somebody walk around naked. It's shameful. Number two, it's also, it's their last line of defense against the elements. Like this, is, this is the last, you take their home, you take their bed, you take their clothes, everything. This is the last thing they have to protect them from the, the heat of the sun and from the, from the cold temperatures of the desert night. This is the last thing they have. It is inhumane to take this from him. There's laws against it. Jesus says, man, if they want everything you have, give them everything you have. Give them the tunic. Give them the outer garment as well. If someone seeks to take more than their fair share, give them above and beyond what they actually are allowed to take from you. Again, how? How could we possibly live that out? How could followers of Jesus possibly live that out? And what would the implications be for the world around us? We'll get there. The last one is this. To go the extra mile. If anyone forces you to go to, to forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles. Again, a legal matter of the day. Roman soldiers were legally allowed to force a, a citizen of, of the nation of Israel to go to carry their pack one mile. It was a legal thing. They were allowed to do that. Anything beyond that was against the Roman law. They were not allowed to kind of abuse this, but they were allowed to say, listen, I'm going here. I need you to carry my pack for one mile. You can carry my pack for one 
mile. So just imagine, just imagine for a moment, you're on your way to work or you're on your way home from work. You're, you're running errands. You're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to pick up some stuff for dinner. And you bump into a Roman soldier and he says, hey, I'm going the opposite direction you're going, but I need you to carry my, my pack one mile. So it's a horribly disrespectful thing and a horrible inconvenience of the day. This was a hot issue in the nation of Israel. I mean, how, how dare they? How dare they treat us this way? And Jesus' response is, go with them two miles. Go with them two miles. If someone wants to force you to do something against your will that you don't want to do, do it to the best of your possible ability and then some. If your boss comes in on Friday at 4.50 and says, hey, I have a project and I need it by 8 a.m. Monday, your response within your soul is, wait, don't you understand? It's the weekend, man. Like, I'm not working for you in the weekend. This is my right. I have rights. You cannot force me to do this. Sermon on the Mount says, Monday morning he comes in or she comes in and there's a hot cup of coffee, there's breakfast, and there's that report done to the best of your ability. What does it look like to go the extra mile? To give to those who would take more than they should take. How can this be? When I say that, I mean, how can this humanly be? Like, how can we actually live this way? Like, I, I may, maybe I'm the only one, but I'm just not good enough, man. When people wrong me, like, I just don't have enough control in my soul to, like, to do the things that Jesus is calling me to do. How? How do we gain the, the ability as human beings to live our life in this way? Friends, I'm going to argue this morning, it must be rooted in the love of Christ. For the Christian, our love, the love of Christ compels us, compels us to live a different life. When we experience the full weight the massiveness, the vastness of his love and the implications of that love. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we act. It shifts what we value. It shifts what we care about. It shifts the way we think about life. When you fully root yourself in the work of the gospel, it changes all things in our life. If someone seeks to take your dignity, if they would rob you of your dignity, you stand right back up. And you offer them the other cheek because your worth and your dignity has been secured by Christ. And they cannot take, you from, take that from you, even with the greatest insult. You can say whatever you want to be. You can publicly embarrass me all you want. You cannot take the dignity that Christ has given me. And when my dignity and my honor is rooted in him, not in the things of this world, not in the sermon of the world, I can turn the other cheek. When Christ is our example, as Christ hung on the cross being spit upon and mocked, he did not fight for his dignity because it could not be taken or diminished by human hands. Do you have that level of security in him? Is your honor wrapped up in Christ or is it wrapped up in how other people see you and how other people think of you? Is your worth wrapped up in Christ in the completed work on the cross and in his resurrection? Or it is in the praise of man 
Somebody wants to take your stuff. Your treasure, your true treasure in Christ is in heaven. You should not be concerned with your stuff here on earth. The follower of Christ moves to give even to the evil who are looking to take. If someone sues you for everything you have, give them that and then some. Declare to them that your greatest possession is Christ alone and they'll never be able to take him from you. When they stripped Christ of his clothes, even his outer garment, his outer cloak is taken away from him. And they paraded him naked through the streets. He did not fight back because his treasure was not found in this world, but in heaven. Do you have that level of treasure in Christ? Is your greatest possession outside of this world? If somebody takes everything you have in this world, do you still have far more than enough? And we're forced to go the extra mile. So many inconveniences our time. For the fall of Christ, we move to serve even those who have evil intent. It's not theirs to take. It's not theirs to take. But it is yours to give. And Christ says, give it. Give it. If they want it, give, them, give it to them and give them more than that. When Christ was forced to carry his own cross, he did so for as long as his body possibly could. He gave and he gave until he had nothing more to give. Do you have that level of endurance for evil? It's a question that every follower of Jesus must wrestle with. Do you have that level of endurance for evil? Is there so much of Christ filling your soul that you can endure that level of evil? Jesus' death and resurrection has given us, the Christian, the power to live out a non-self-centered ethic. To put the care of others above our own care. To put the interests of others above our own rights. To, put the, to, put the care for the, to, to care for the immigrant in a radically loving way rather than turn him away. To give to those who would steal from us. To walk with those who would exercise power in an unhealthy way over us. And what would happen, what would happen if we learned to be as creative in our giving and our serving as the rest of the world is in their acts of revenge? Um, maybe you guys know uh, who Fred Phelps was. Um, he was a so-called uh, pastor at a so-called church called Westboro Baptist Church um, in Kansas City. Fred Phelps uh, became famous for picketing the funerals of uh, gay and lesbian men and women and soldiers who had died in combat. Uh, they would show up with signs. I have some pictures of it for you here. If you, can, you can see. They'd show up with these signs and spewing hate. Thank God for dead soldiers. God hates your feelings. You're going to hell. That's a, always an encouraging thing to say. Um, they would, they would show up and they would spew hate, declaring that, man, this is God's punishment. Like this death, this mourning, this God's punishment for all of our sin. You're going to hell. My personal favorite, the next one, your pastor's a whore. It's inappropriate, but they're talking about me. Um, they would par parade and they would pick at all of these different events, different... different uh, different concerts because the performing act, actor, uh, musician, you know, believed something different than they believed. They'd show up and they'd spew 
hate all over. And when you see those images, friends, when you see that, what does it do to your heart? What does it do to your soul? Does it not, does it not create something within you? Like, is, is there not something in you that kind of boils over and says, man, they need to be repaid? Is that, am, am I the only one that thinks, man, somebody needs to teach them a lesson? They need to get what they get. Am, am I the only one that feels that way? 2014, Fred Phelps died. He, uh, he passed away. And um, shortly after his funeral, they showed up to pick at a concert. Um, and at, that, at, this, at this kind of protest with all their signs, there was a young woman uh, who created a sign, and she stood across the street from, from their protest with her own sign. And this is what her sign said. A young woman who violently disagreed with their ideals, with their values, with their morals, but rather than scream and match hate for hate, violence for violence, she matched their hate with love and with mercy. And my question remains, what does that do to you? Do you feel that deep within your gut, deep within your heart? Do you, when you see that image, do you, do you feel that? Does it not outweigh the feeling that you felt when you saw the other signs. This is the reality that you have to understand. And when, when the world encounters grace and love in, in the midst of intense hate and violence, it produces within the viewer, within the, the eyes of the world, within the soul of the world, a response that declares, that is far better than what I was thinking. Our human nature says, they deserve to burn. Like, that's what our human nature says. I mean, they deserve to be just absolutely ripped apart. But when the world, when the human nature encounters grace and mercy in the midst of violence and tyranny, right, it, it says, I man, that is more beautiful than what's in me. That's more powerful than what's in me. And only that will actually stop hate and violence. Violence will never Stop violence. Hate will never stop hate. It grows and it grows and it grows. It feeds itself. It feeds itself. And the reality is that the next question that's asked, the next question that so many people ask, first let me ask you this. I, I forgot. Let me ask you this. Who's your Fred? Who is your, who is your Fred Phelps, man? What, what's the... What's the person's name that just makes you want to rip their face off? What's their name? What's the, what's the political position? What's the nation? What's the religion? Who's your Fred? Who's the person that you need to respond in love and grace and kindness to rather than wrath and vengeance? Who are they? And how are you going to do that?
The next question that's so often asked is, don't you understand what would actually happen? Like, what would really happen, right? If Christians decided to, to not respond to evil, right? To not resist evil. To just say, hey, let them do it. Listen, I'm just going to let them do it. Like, I'll stand there with my sign and say, I'm sorry for your loss. And don't you just realize they're just going to keep, they're just going to walk all over you. You realize that, right? Somebody slaps you on the cheek and you turn the other cheek. Like, they're, they're going to beat you. you. You realize that, right? Like, and you say, man, we're not going to respond violently. Don't you realize that violent people are going to kill us all? Friends, let me tell you something. That's not true. That's the sermon of the world. And you, you need to wrap your mind around that. It's, it's a hard thing to stomach. But the reality is, is that when Christians fail, when we Christians fail to be obedient to Christ's authoritative teaching on retaliation and revenge, horrible atrocities occur. What actually creates violence, what actually creates the, the most horrible things the world has ever seen or know is when Christians fail to actually be Christians. I'll name a few for you. The Civil War. If Christians would have acted like Christians, there would have been no need for the war, and the war would have never happened. World War I, Christians fighting against Christians. World War II, whether you want to believe it or not, Germany was, at that time, a so-called Christian nation. And if they would have acted like Christians, there would have been no need for the war, and the war would have never happened. Over 100 million men died in those wars. It would have never happened if Christians would have just acted like Christians. And we could go on and on and on. We can debate it all day long. What I'm telling you right now, violence doesn't stop violence. But if Christians would act like Christians, so much atrocity would have been stopped. And you look at the opposite. You look at like at men like Martin Luther King who meet violence without vengeance, who seek justice, who seek justice without vengeance. You say, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, but I'm going to fight for what's right. I'm going to do so in a, in, a, in a kind and gracious and loving way. I'm going to tell Christians to stand up and act like Christians. And the world takes notes. And I know we've got a long way to go. I'm reminded every day that we're not nearly as far along as I wish we were or thought we once were. But are you going to be the person who stands up and tells Christians to start acting like Christians? Or are you going to just go along with the sermon of the world and say, yeah, let's get them? There's a different way to respond to the evil of the world and what is the natural sinful nature of your heart. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is his point. There is a different way to respond to the evil of the world. Small little things in your family, massive things on a global scale. There's a different way to respond to the evil of the world than what is the nature, the sinful nature of your heart. The best way to fight violence is not with more violence, but rather the Christian is to overcome evil with Christ-like suffering, endurance, love, and good. It will change the world. It will change the world. And out of this flows so many different questions that you need to wrestle with. Now, I'm not making a statement this morning. Listen, I'm just saying this is a long journey. And if you don't sit in it, if you don't ask the questions and actually wrestle with the questions, you'll never get to the other end. You'll never actually arrive. You'll just keep going with the sermon of the world. 
The Sermon on the Mount forces us to ask questions. Should a Christian, according to the teaching of Jesus and the authority of the word, word of God, carry a gun in order to meet violence with lethal violence? Should he? Should a Christian keep a gun next to the bed ready to do lethal violence to those who may seek to harm him? Should they? Should a Christian, according to the teaching of Jesus and the authority of the word of God, should a Christian kill for any reason? And if so, what reason? I'm not making a statement. I'm just asking the questions that we don't want to ask because maybe Jesus disagrees with my view of violence, protection, power, control, comfort, safety, ownership, rights, purpose, and simply what it means to be human. Are you being obedient to the Sermon of the World or the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount disrupts the Sermon of the World. And you need to, at the very least, take time to really ask the hard questions in order to choose which one you're going to follow and, more importantly, the person you want to become like. Do you want to become like the average 21st century American or do you want to become like Christ? Those are two very different people. Don't fool yourself into believing that they're one and the same. I'm not making a statement of politics. I'm saying, who do you want to be? One is actually much harder than the other. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We sit in this text confronted with hard truths and hard questions. So many more questions. There's a million things racing through the minds in this room. What if this and what if that and what if that and what if this? What if the God of all things were to give us far more than we could ever need? Far, far more purpose, far more dignity, far more respect, far more treasure far more value, far more love, that we are freed, freed from the things of this world, no longer needing to fight fire with fire, no longer to meet violence with violence, no longer needing to seek revenge and retaliation to repay evil for evil, to one-up our brother, to one-up our sister, to make them pay for what they've done. But what if Christians started acting like Christians? Would you produce in us, Jesus, would you produce in us a maturity? Would you produce in us a willingness to wrestle, a willingness to engage, a willingness to to sit with an open mind, to ask hard questions, and to not, not just ask them and walk away, but to ask them and truly wrestle, and come back again and again and again and again and say, what? What am I called to as a follower of Jesus? What are my rights as a follower of Jesus? What are my ethics personally as a follower of Jesus? And how does that play out in the small decisions and the big decisions of life? Teach us, show us, help us to become more like you. Praise things in your sweet name. In the image of Jesus, amen.